What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on the podcast, I have a special guest. His name is Richard Silla, and what can I tell you? He is an historian of uh, finance, a professor uh, at NYU Stern, uh, an expert on central banks, on interest rates, on uh, history of markets. Really, there isn't a broad topic about finance that he hasn't either researched or published about. Uh, he is just simply a wealth of knowledge uh, and has not only written long, in-depth books about broad topics, but also uh, written in real time and reflected that knowledge in terms of actionable uh, market activity. Uh, I found this to be not exactly a wonky conversation, but if you're at all interested in interest rates, finance history, central banks, things along those lines, I think you'll find this to be an absolutely uh, fascinating chat. So with no further ado, my conversation with Professor Richard Silla. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest today is Richard Silla. He is the Professor Emeritus of Economics and the former Henry Kaufman Professor of History of Financial Institutions and Markets at New York University's Stern School of Business. He is the author of numerous books, including American Capital Markets, a History of Interest Rates, and most recently, Alexander Hamilton on Finance, Credit, and Debt. Uh, Professor Silla, welcome to Bloomberg. Glad to be with you, Barry. So I'm aware of, of your, your career and your contributions to the world of finance. I left out in our introduction that you are also currently chairman of the Museum of American Finance, which holds numerous events and has some really tremendous um, exhibits, really fascinating exhibits. But let's start by discussing the history of markets. Why should any of us be concerned about what took place in the past? Why should we study market history? Well, I think uh, one of the main reasons for studying market history is that uh, things that happen in the past tend to repeat themselves. You know, mm -hmm. things like financial crises. They we had one recently. It was kind of unexpected because we hadn't had one for a long time. But then, just studying the way the markets behaved in the past, there are ups and downs. You can learn a bit about. Uh, market cycles and you know I think an investor needs to know where we are sort of in a market cycle because that's valuable information. So can we trade on that information? Can we actually use that information to make risk reward decisions or does it just provide a framework for how we're conceptualizing broader market cycles? Well I have, a couple times in my career have made my own investment decisions and they turned out to have been right. Uh, uh, Around 2000, at the height of the dot-com bubble, I and other people like Bob Schiller thought the markets were tremendously overpriced. Mm -hmm. And I wrote an article, I think I first gave it as a talk at the end of 1999, wrote it up in 2000, it was published in 2001, and I said uh, there that um, uh, when whenever the markets went up as much as they did, peaking around 1999, mm -hmm. usually the next decade was a bad decade. And I wrote that in 2001, and I made a forecast just by assuming returns would be real returns would be zero. That uh, you know what would happen to returns, and and it turned out that you know I actually drew a picture of it, and it turned out that what actually happened from 2000 to 2009 sort of mimicked pretty much what I did. Uh, then in 2009, uh, or actually probably a year later, 2010 or 11, for the same reason, after you have this big decline of a decade or so, market history told me that the next decade after that is usually better. So I made a prediction that you know we would have a pretty good decade from 2010 to 2020, and uh, that's pretty much come to pass too. So it sounds like you're not 
actively involved in, I certainly won't call it day trading, but day-to-day, week-to-week sort of noisy market moves, you're looking at long arcs of history and decade-long periods of mean regression from when stocks are either very pricey or very cheap. Precisely. I would say that the both in terms of interest rates and in terms of stock market returns, there are kind of longer cycles. And, you know, n- nobody can predict exactly what's going to happen. They aren't exactly a decade. But in my view, uh, you could tell that stocks were a bargain around 2009, 10, 11, just as you could tell they were not a bargain around 1998, 99, 2000. And so, what you want to do, since you can never predict when markets will turn, when you think stocks are not a bargain, you probably ought to raise some cash and be ready for, you know, have some cash when the markets fall, uh, when Wall Street has a sale, I like to call mm-hmm. it. Uh, at the same time, then when everyone else is depressed, like they were in 2009 and 10, uh, that's when Wall Street's having a sale. That's a good time to buy. That I think this is what history shows you. Uh, some people call this market timing, uh, but I view it as, you know, in some sense, it is in a long-term uh, sense market timing. But I think market timers usually think in much shorter terms, like, you know, I'm going to ride this current wave. You're raising a fascinating issue that I'm, I'm very much enamored with, and that's when everybody is very enthusiastic about stocks and they seem to get pricey. It's not easy to avoid getting swept up in that mania. And you mentioned uh, 2009, 2008, 2010. People were extremely negative on stocks. How do you avoid allowing the emotional state of the crowd to affect you? Meaning, how can you buy when everyone hates stocks and they're cheap and lighten up when everybody loves stocks and they're very expensive? Well, it requires a certain amount of discipline. And I think that's what an investor really has to have, discipline. Don't be swept up by the, the latest uh, manias or, uh, or depressions. You know, that, I mean, People go from being euphoric to being depressed. And usually when they're euphoric, that's a time to sell. When they're depressed, it's a good time to buy. In some sense, it's a contrarian strategy. Uh-huh. But I think uh, anyone who studies long-term market cycles would say it's the right strategy to have. So after the 09 bottom for I remember even in October of 2009 I think the markets had bounced like 30 or 40% off the lows and we heard people saying listen this is too far too fast markets really need some time to digest this and I don't know 3 4 years later people were still more or less saying the same thing this is too fast off the lows this is too negative so it's one thing when stocks were fairly inexpensive in 09. How do you sequester that sort of noise two or three years later when stocks weren't terribly expensive, but they also weren't terribly cheap? I think that's where the history comes in. I think if you realize that markets tend to trend for you know, 10 or 15 years in a certain direction, and you, know, you, you can t- kind of tell where you are. I mean, you, I could tell in 2009 and 10 that the markets were at one of their low points of all of U.S. history for 200 years of market history. And so what I would say when the markets bounced up a little bit, well, that was an encouraging sign. I know I give some talks to groups around 2010 and 11, and I was pretty optimistic about the market. And people were shaking their heads and saying, you know, you, you, you seem to be much too optimistic. We're, we're, we're still pessimistic. Uh, so I think it's that long-term view that, uh, you know, it's not day trading. It's not even uh, trading uh, little jumps and ups and downs of the market. It's really taking the long-term view and saying, if you buy stocks at where they were in 2009, 10, 11, 10 years later, you're likely to be pretty happy. Let's talk a little bit about interest rates. And I have to bring up a quote of yours that just is so fascinating. Quote, the rates we've had in recent years, including right now, are the lowest in history. The history of interest rates traces back to the Code of Hammurabi, Babylon civilization, Greek and Roman civilization, the Middle Ages, the Renaissance, and the early modern history right up to the present. I can assure listeners that the rates they're experiencing right now are the lowest in human history. That's fascinating. Are are we really at thousand-year lows, 2,000-year lows in in interest rates? Uh, Closer to 3,000-year lows. Wow. (laughs) That is, in all of recorded history, 
rates never got to be quite as low as they have been in recent years. See, if the Romans knew about quantitative easing, they'd still be <laughs> running the world, perhaps. That's possible. <laughs> so, so let's discuss interest rates um, and put them into a little bit of context. First, the obvious question, why are interest rates so far away from their traditional averages? I, I, it just seems like this is an unprecedented era of low rates. Well, it is an unprecedented era. I would say the main reason rates have been as low as, they, as they've been in, in recent years is the financial crisis of 2007 to nine. I call it. Mm -hmm. It started in 2007 and kind of peaked out after the Lehman failure and continued into 2009 when unemployment, we had a great recession, you know, and 10% sure. unemployment. Uh, and it was the response of the monetary authorities to that uh, basically to buy up a lot of financial assets and uh, balance sheets of central banks doubled, tripled, quadrupled. And I think it was that these massive purchases of securities, some call it quantitative easing, mm -hmm. uh, that basically drove interest rates to very low levels. And the central banks did that because they wanted to uh, bring us back from the, the depths of the crisis. And they succeeded, but uh, they only succeeded after keeping interest rates at very low levels for a long time, the lowest levels in human history. If I recall, after the dot-com crash in 2000 and then the recession that lasted from March of '01 to um, October of that year, Alan Greenspan had taken rates down not quite to zero, but they were under 2% for a couple of years, and they were at 1% for at least a year, how significant was that era of interest rates to what came afterwards? Well, you know, Barry, I wrote the uh, last edition of the History of Interest Rates, updating it in 2004 and five. I think it was published in 2005, and I was working on it in 2004. And at that time, I thought that maybe we had reached the low of the interest rate market. And uh, you mentioned the recession of 2001. Greenspan's Fed responded to that by driving their policy rate down to as low as 1%. I think in 2002 and 2000, 2003, uh, we had a Federal Reserve uh, policy rate of about 1%. And uh, then the Fed began raising in uh, 2004, the middle of 2004, and uh, I thought, well, maybe 2003, I can even give you a month, the 10-year uh, the bond got to 3.33% in May of 2003. Wow. And uh, I was updating the book a year later, and I said, well, you know, rates have come up, and now the Fed is raising, so maybe that May of 2003 is a low. Well, today we laugh when we say the 10-year bond at 3.33%. We haven't seen that for quite a while. Uh, it's about 2.8% right now, and that's up from uh, less than uh, 2%. Uh, so I think uh, that then I thought that, well, we turned the corner. What I couldn't foresee in 2004 and five, and I don't think anybody else foresaw it either, was that we were going to have this financial crisis starting in 2007 and eight. Maybe I should have paid more attention to what was going on in the mortgage market, but uh, uh, I, I didn't foresee the crisis. L lots of people saw parts of it. Very, very few people managed to see the whole overall collapse coming, with, uh, certainly not with any degree of, of successful timing. Some people during that era were saying, well, these low rates are, are a function of the cash glut we have. China has a ton of cash. That's what's driving rates down. What, what's your, your view on that? Well, that, Ben Bernanke, I think, uh, thought mm -hmm. that there was a glut of savings in the world. And that was one of the reasons, you know, this is before the financial crisis. Why were rates so low? Actually, when the Fed was raising starting in 2004, you know, from 2004, middle of 2004 up to 2006, the Federal Reserve raised its policy rate 25 basis points at every meeting. And so we were up from 1% where we started up to between 5 and 6% a couple years later. And uh, uh, they were hoping that, you know, that longer-term uh, interest rates would, would respond to that. But they were surprised when they raised the short-term rates, but the long rates didn't really go up very much. And that's when Bernanke coined this glut of savings in the world, that there was just such a demand for safe government bonds that uh, uh, despite the Fed raising short-term interest rates, the long-term rates didn't move much at all. Greenspan called it the conundrum. The conundrum. So I've heard the phrase recently, normalizing interest rates. The Fed isn't merely raising rates but they're getting off an emergency footing and moving 
back towards normalization. What what are your views on that? Well, I think you know, I I think that's what they're trying to do. And from my historian's perspective, I would sort of say that you know people would say, well, what is a normal rate? How far do we have to go to get to a normal rate? And when I was uh, just a kid in the 1950s, the Fed was normalizing interest rates. So interest rates had become very low in World War II, partly because the Fed was enlisted in the war effort and given the job of pegging government bonds. It was 2.5% on a long-term bond and three-eighths of 1% on Treasury bills. Wow. And after the war, the Fed maintained those that pegging for a while because uh, the Secretary of the Treasury wanted to minimize the interest cost of the national debt. But then the Fed said, if we keep doing this, we're going to cause inflation. So in 1951, the Fed was given its freedom to normalize, basically. And over the course of the 1950s, those very low rates that came along with World War II raised, gradually rose. And, and by the end of the 50s, they were up where you got like four and a quarter, four and a half percent on a government bond, maybe the late 50s, early 60s. And I would say, from a long-term perspective, that something like that, you know, f between 4 and 5% on a long-term government bond and maybe, you know, 2 to 2 to 4% on shorter-term stuff, that's sort of normal rates. So that's what I'm thinking the Fed is doing now. You know, maybe something like the 1950s, where they'll gradually increase rates till we get to normal. And I think normal is 4 to 5% on a government bond uh, long-term and maybe 2 to 4% on short-term stuff. Let's talk a little bit about your background. Uh, you have some really interesting history. You studied for a time at the Indian Statistical Institute at Calcutta. Tell us about that. Well, I was a, that was after my undergraduate education at Harvard, and I was a fairly good student at Harvard. What, what did you study undergrad? I studied economics. I was one of two people in Harvard's class in 1962 who, in 1958, they wanted to say they were going to major in economics. Two out of 1,100. By the time we graduated, something like a quarter to a third of the class majored in economics. So I knew before I got to Harvard that I wanted to study economics. But that wasn't taught so much in high school in the 1950s. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, you know, I and one other person of the Harvard's 1,100 class said we want to major in economics. And four years later, about a you know a quarter the class majored in economics. So you also got a master's at Harvard and a doctorate. That was after my tour of duty in India. So uh, let's let's go back to India. What what made you say I know I'll go halfway across the world? Well, to I, India? I was lucky enough to get a. Uh, traveling fellowship or scholarship after I graduated from Harvard where I could go any place in the world uh, and study for a year. It was financing for a year. And what I did was the, chose India because it was halfway around the world and I had a class from Reinhold Niebuhr, the famous theologian, taught mm -hmm. a class like on emerging markets when I was a senior in Harvard and I took the class from Reverend Reinhold Niebuhr and he got me interested in India. Uh, so the combination of being awarded this fellowship and having learned something about India made me choose India to spend my year away. This at, is 1963. 1962-63. That's when I was at the Indian Statistical Institute in Calcutta. So what was Calcutta like in the early 60s? Because even today, it's a fairly—is uh, frenetic the right word? A fairly frenetic country with enormous challenges facing it, but— some tremendous um, assets as well. What was Calcutta like in 1962? Uh, it was a very interesting for a young man. I thought it was I, it was an eye opener in a way. Uh -huh. uh, you know, they would say, and I saw this. They would say that a hundred thousand people just slept on the pavement every night. And that was the poor man's air conditioning, you know, because India can be kind of hot. The, the <laughs> pavement is kind of cool. And so people would, you know, get away from the heat by just wow. getting down and bedding down on the concrete because it was a little cooler than the air around them. Literally 100,000 people on the streets of Yeah, Calcutta. and Calcutta, of course, had millions of people. Mm -hmm. But, you know, basically India is a country that's like one-third the size of the United States but has about four times as many people. Amazing. So it, that, that put those two together, and you've got a country that's about— 12 times the density of population sure. that we have in the United States. Wow. So so you're studying at the Indian Statistical Institute. What did you learn? 
Well, I studied, uh, you know, economics and uh, finance, and, and the, these people were a statistical institute, so I got some econometric training there. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't remember the details of what I studied, but I do remember meeting a famous British scientist named J.B.S. Haldane, who had kind of gotten fed up with Britain and moved to India and wore Indian clothes, you know, a dhoti and all that. Uh-huh. And, you know, he was one of the great scientists of the first half of the 20th century, so I got to know him, and that was kind of a lot of fun to get his perspective on the world. So did you know back then you wanted to go into academia? And to put a little context for this, you've been at NYU for just about 30 years, since 1990. And before that, you, you taught at a few other schools. Right. Uh, how, how conscious were you of the lure of academia back then? Well, I think I was kind of, uh, you remember the the late 50s and early 60s were a great time to be in an American university because we were worried about the Russians and Sputnik, and mm-hmm. so the government was putting a lot of money into financing higher education. And so it, it, any young person in the late 50s, early 60s thinking about a career, academia would look pretty good because of all this uh, uh, interest of the government in beefing up our uh, intellectual uh, talents and so, but so I, as I mentioned, I I wanted to major in economics before I got to Harvard, and I was my interest in economics was kindled even more at Harvard. And after taking this year off, or even before I went out to India, I thought I want to come back and get a PhD. The only question was where and. Harvard let me in, and uh, you know, there's always a family thing too. My wife wanted to study the; she was one year after me in college, but she wanted to go to grad school in the history of science, and Harvard was really good in that. So your wife is studying the history of science. Did that influence you to move from economics to the history of finance? Not so much. I think the how did I go from being an economist to becoming an economic and financial historian? And yes, that's where a particular influential mentor comes in. Uh, Harvard at that time had an economic historian named Alexander Gershenkron, who mm-hmm. was a uh, born in Russia, but he, you know, he was like the first half of the 20th century. His father was a capitalist, so he had to leave Russia when he was a teenager in 1917, and they went to uh, Austria, and so he, his uh, you know formative years were in Austria. But then Hitler came to power, so he had to leave Europe and came to America. Uh, people knew that he was a great scholar, so he got a job teaching at night at Berkeley. Mm -hmm. Uh, In the daytime, he worked in the shipyards building Liberty ships. Wow. (laughs) And he knew 20 different languages. And so people got to, you know, said to anybody with that talent, we need him to come to Washington in the war and help us translate documents. So he went to Washington, and in Washington he met Harvard professors who said, this guy's really smart and a good economic historian. So pretty soon, by the late 1940s, he comes to Harvard as the professor of economic history. And I had him, I sat in on his graduate class as an undergrad, But then I had to take the class as a graduate student because every Harvard PhD had to study economic history in those days. Unfortunately, that's not true anymore. But he was such a uh, you know interesting lecturer and had this wealth of knowledge. And what he persuaded me is that you can study all the economics you want. You can be a money and banking economist. You can be a public finance economist. Those were the fields I was thinking of. But you can apply them to history. And I decided that that was really interesting to apply the tools of economics to understand history better. So he's the one that made me uh, move into economic and financial history. Fascinating. Let's talk a little bit about your most recent book. You've, You've written a previous book on Alexander Hamilton, the illustrated Alexander Hamilton. But this month you have a new book out called Alexander Hamilton on Finance, Credit, and Debt. What can Hamilton teach us today on such weighty topics as credit and debt? Well, Hamilton faced many of the issues we face today, you know, a a large national debt that has to be managed. In his case, it was the debt that was left over from the American Revolution. And uh, it'll seem strange to Americans today, but after the American Revolution, the national government, which was just Congress, did not have its own revenues. It had to ask the states for revenue, sort of like a united fund uh, approach to financing Let, government. Let's, let's break that down a little bit. So at the time, there's no Federal Reserve Bank. There's no power of taxation with the federal government. So hat in hand, they go to the 13 former colonies, now states, and say, hey, we need to pay for our Revolutionary War. 
Right, and the states basically said, uh, we have our own problems, we can't really contribute very much to the federal government. So in the 1780s, after the revolution is over and Britain has recognized America's independence, the national government did not have the money it needed to pay the interest on its debt, much less the principal. Basically, the United States was like a country in default on its debts. It borrowed a lot of money and could not pay the interest. From who? 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 Obviously not Japan and China back then. Who were the creditors to the U.S. while we were throwing uh, Britain out? The largest part of the debt was financed by Americans. You know, the, oh, really? the bonds were sold to America. Lots of merchants bought the debt. And mm-hmm. in some cases, the debt was issued as IOUs to soldiers and suppliers. Wow. Uh, you know, that the government didn't really have the revenue well, while the war was going on to pay for what it needed. And so it, it would take things, actually, confiscate goods, but give people a receipt saying, you know, when, when Congress gets around to it, you'll be paid this. So some of the debt was uh, not exactly arm's-length transaction. It right. was, you know, the the... The situation of the American army was so desperate that they just sometimes just had to confiscate goods from Americans. To Le- leave a note behind. Sorry about yeah, your leave a note. So the, those crops. notes that were left behind, but in some cases they sold bonds to people. Mm-hmm. So the great majority of the debt was uh, Americans were financing it themselves. But about twelve uh, million dollars, which was about maybe a, a, a fifth of the debt, was borrowed from people overseas. French, fr- uh, mm-hmm. the French government, the King of France, basically lent Americans a lot. We we should remember, and these some of those loans were absolutely crucial to find getting uh, supplies that our armies needed to win our independence. The the enemy of my enemy is my friend, essentially. Exactly. That, uh, That's a, a point that Hamilton had to teach Jefferson. Jefferson thought because France had lent us money, they were really nice people. And since the Brits had fought against us, they were bad people. And Hamilton had to persuade him, no, France didn't lend us money because they're nice people. <laughs> it, it was in their interest to do it because Britain was their great rival. So— uh, in, in the new book on on Hamilton, let, let's get into some more details. What what is the Hamiltonian perspective on on the ability to tax the population and the ability for a government to um, develop credit and issue debt uh, in order to fund its ongoing operations? Well, one of the key aspects of the United States Constitution, which Hamilton was one of the spearheads for in the 1780s, you know, he uh, was a delegate to the convention, was to get the national government, the fed- the new federal government, to have its own revenue. And the Constitution allowed that. And then Hamilton is appointed the first Treasury Secretary, and he wants to restore or really establish the public credit of the United States. So he basically restructures the U.S. national debt into the modern Treasury bond market with, you know, three different new securities. And then he uses the revenues that are coming in, mostly from customs duties, to pay the interest on that debt. And very quickly in the early 1790s, he turns the sort of junk bonds of the 1780s into prime government bonds that are purchased not only by Americans but by foreign investors as well. So Hamilton basically establishes public credit. But, of course, he did a lot more. He founded the first central bank. He defined the U.S. dollar in terms of gold and silver. And part of his plan, I think, was, you know, if he creates these new securities, government bonds and stock in the bank of the United States, uh, capital markets will be established to trade these securities. Uh, the New York Stock Exchange, we know, was established under the Buttonwood Tree in mm-hmm. May 1792. That's because the brokers needed a better trading system because of all the new securities that were being traded. Uh, so the securities markets are a result of Hamilton's policies. And the states, you know, he establishes the Bank of the United States and says the U.S. government's going to earn a profit by investing in it. Uh, state governments then say, well, we can start a lot of banks too and maybe take a position in them and earn some money. So we then have a banking system. Uh, and the Bank of the United States was a very large corporation for its time. And so that encouraged the state governments to establish more American corporations. And in my career, I've studied a lot of these things in terms of the numbers. And you, you just see that you know the, the number of corporations rises rapidly in the 1790s. The states are establishing more banks. Uh, this is Hamilton basically modernized our finances. And I think the biographers of Hamilton in general don't recognize this as perhaps his greatest achievement, establishing our modern financial system. So so we have financial markets that trace back to Hamilton. Um, the Federal Reserve, even though the, the Federal Reserve we know today dates back to, is it 1913? 19, the bill was passed in 1913, and the, the banks opened in late 1914. 
Uh, how does the current Federal Reserve um, relate to what Hamilton's conception of a, a central bank uh, could be or should be, for that matter? Well, I call the Federal Reserve, uh, with my historical perspective, the third bank of the mm-hmm. United States. That's because Hamilton established the first bank of the United States in 1791, and uh, it lasted only for 20 years. American politics got involved. Is it correct that, and I'm, I'm vaguely remembering the research I did uh, about a decade ago, the first two Federal Reserve banks or, or central banks that were Federal Reserve-like they were each formed with a finite lifespan. It wasn't an in perpetuity. Is that is that more or less right? Yep, that is true, that they were chartered for 20 years. And, and in general, that was true of most corporations at that time. Even the Bank of England had a limitation on its charter. It had to come in and reapply to have its charter renewed. Every and, 20 years or so? Uh, 20, 30, it differed a little bit. Mm-hmm. But the banks of the United States were, you know, in keeping with the times when Congress chartered them, that banking was kind of new in the United States. They didn't know how it would work out. They just had this fellow Hamilton saying it was going to work out well and we really needed this. They weren't sure. So they put a 20-year limit on it. And that converted this into a political issue. And in 1811... uh, for various re- political reasons, basically. The bank was good economically, but it, it had a, a tough time politically. Uh, the Basically, the state banking interests wanted to get rid of it, mm-hmm. and so they were successful by just one vote. You know, the vice president of the United States had to pe- say no. Break uh, the tie. Break the tie. And so the first bank went out of existence, right? This was what, were they com- Were they competing with the state banks? Is that why there was um, opposition to it, or was it more of a states' rights yeah, there issue? Yeah, were, there were... The Bank of the United States was much bigger than any of the state banks and had branches all over the country. One thing Hamilton gave us right at the start was interstate banking, which we got uh-huh. away from later, but we've brought back now. But basically, the Bank of the United States differed from the Fed in this sense. It it uh, competed with the other banks. It, in other words, it was a private corporation or 20% owned by the government, 80% by private investors. It made loans just like any other bank did. So it was a competitor, and this may have been one of the problems that the uh, state banks were much more numerous by 1811 than they were in 1791 when there were only three or four. Mm-hmm. And by 1811, they said, gee, if we got rid of the Bank of the United States, we would get rid of a regulator, we would get rid of a competitor, and we would probably then have to take over the government's banking business. So it was like a win-win-win situation. So the, uh, bank of the United, first bank of the United States disappeared, but then we got into the War of 1812 when the bank might have really helped us and it wasn't there. And so the bank's worst enemies in 1811 by 1815 and 16 said, we really need a, a central bank. So they brought in the second bank of the United States, but it ran into, 20 years later, it ran into a problem with President Andrew Jackson, who didn't like banks. And I think it was the same sort of politics as in 1811. Some people saw it in their interest to get rid of the second bank of the United States. So we had two central banks early in our history, and we got rid of both of them for 70 years from, say, 1836 to 1914, we didn't have a central bank. Uh, but we had a big financial crisis in 1907, and it's just like the War of 1812 persuaded people that central banks might be good. The financial panic of 1907, by which time the U.S. is the biggest economy in the world, is sort of embarrassing. And one way to get away from these panics is to start a new central bank. That's how we got the Federal Reserve. So so let's... Let's stay with this idea of the 1907 panic. If if memory serves, and again, I, I'm going to rely on you to correct me, we had the great earthquake in San Francisco in 1906. April 1906. Right. A huge amount of insurance money comes over to the U.S. from Lloyd's of London and everywhere else in, in Europe that were— Also East Coast U.S. too. There were a lot of big insurance companies in the East Coast U.S. that had to pay off for the San Francisco damage. So, so all this money comes in, and then the Bank of England raises rates in order to attract capital back, and we're sort of— uh, Unarmed. We don't have a central bank that has the ability to do that. Is that is that a fair descriptor? I think you're showing a good knowledge of financial history, Barry. Okay. Uh, that the, it's a little dusty. It's a little uh, well. The, but the idea that the San Francisco earthquake of April 1906 might have something to do with the financial panic in 1907 was, you know, a fairly recent finding of mm-hmm. financial historians. 
and the mechanism was through the insurance payments. What the the insurance claims for to fix up San Francisco led to a drain of gold out of England because a right. lot of those buildings were insured in England. It also led to a drain of gold out of the eastern United States financial centers because they had insurance companies there too. Most of our big insurance companies were in the East Coast, you know, Connecticut, New sure. York. And this movement of, of gold or money to the West Coast U.S. sort of tightened financial conditions in the U.S. money markets and also the English money market. And then the Bank of England, you know, said, well, you know, the gold is leaving, so we better raise interest rates. And so that's the kind of backdrop for money is tight in 1907. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, there's always a trigger to a panic. There was some wild speculation going on in copper stocks. And uh, the shadow banks of that time were called trust companies. The trust companies were involved in as shadow banks in financing some of the speculation in copper stocks. One of the copper speculators failed, and that triggered a run on the trust companies. But it was the backdrop of it was financial conditions were tight anyway, and then you had a sort of uh, bankruptcy and uh, impl- implication of trust companies as being involved. So people rushed on the trust companies and took their money out, and that's what the financial Look, panic. Last financial panic question. Go back the decades before the formation of the Federal Reserve and the 1907 panic. The half century before that, lots of panics and booms and busts. It seems that the pre-Fed era was not exactly the most financially stable in in the banking system. All right. Well, we got rid of the second bank in the United States in 1836. There, there hadn't been many financial crises in the U.S. before that. Then right after the uh, second bank disappeared in 1836, we had the financial panic of 1837, a related one in 1839. We had one in 1857, one in 1873, one in 1884, one in 1893, and then 1907. Right. Uh, I've actually done some research on this, and what I can say is that financial panics were at least twice as frequent when we did not have a central bank as they have been when we had a central bank. Can you stick around a little bit? We'll keep the tape rolling and and continue chatting about all things uh, financial panic. I love to talk about this stuff, certainly. (laughs) We have been speaking with Professor Richard Silla of NYU Stern, author of numerous books, most recently, Hamilton on Debt, Credit, and Finance. If you enjoy this conversation, be sure and stick around for the podcast extras where we keep the tape rolling and continue discussing all things uh, panic-worthy. Uh, be sure and check out my daily column. You can find that on BloombergView.com. Follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at mibpodcast at Bloomberg.net. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing, entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Welcome to the podcast. Professor, thank you so much for doing this. I'm fascinated by the subjects you cover, uh, and I'm just totally enamored in financial history. And, you know, it it couldn't be more true. Those who don't learn from history are um, doomed to repeat its mistakes. Uh, There's a great New Yorker. A cartoon about well, but those of us who do learn from history, we just get to be frustrated by everybody else who doesn't, <laughs> and it and it's really true. Uh, before we get to some of our favorite questions, I just have to ask you a few more things about um, market history and central banks and interest rates. 
because uh, they are so fascinating. There was a lot of criticism of the Federal Reserve following the financial crisis, um, some of which might have been deserved, some of which might have been a little over uh, overwrought. We heard we heard complaints about here comes hyperinflation, here comes the collapse of the dollar, none of which proved true in the decade that followed the crisis. Uh, what are we to make about the changing role of the central bank? Do they have too much power? Have they broadened their mandate too much, or are they more or less doing what they're supposed to be doing? Well, I think they have a considerable amount of power, and you know, central banking history, the checkered history of central banking in the U.S. shows that people get suspicious of concentrated financial power. Mm -hmm. So the Fed has to tend its political fences. Uh, but I think that they, they, especially now that we're in a fiat currency world, we're not. The money isn't backed by gold and silver anymore. Uh, that increases the power of the central banks because they can create money with the stroke of a pen. And they decided to fight the financial crisis by creating a lot of new money, or maybe we should say a lot of new bank reserves, because it, it you know, when you create a lot of money, people are going to think inflation is right around the corner. But in fact, what happened? The Federal Reserve created a lot of what we call high-powered money or base money, mm -hmm. uh, but the banks didn't magnify that into a rapid growth of the money stock. They held the uh, the new money, the new the new uh, base money, basically as excess reserves. And so, excess reserves went from bank reserves went from very low levels in the 2007 to extremely high levels in 2012, 13, 14. And we didn't see that really circulate through the the velocity money didn't tick up tremendously. That's right. um, it it kind of sat there right. more or less. We would have had the inflation some people forecast had the banks, you know, used the new base money the Federal Reserve gave them. They could have made a lot more loans, but they didn't do it. They held these reserves and the Fed was paying interest on them, so it was a kind of safe thing risk-free return. Risk-free return. And uh, uh, so I think that the and the, this why did the banks do that? Well, I think the 1930s, the same thing happened in the 1930s, that a lot of new base money was created in the 1930s, but the banks were sort of shell-shocked from the experience of 1929-33, right. so they held a lot of excess reserves for a whole decade after the banking crises of 1930-31. Doesn't, doesn't the pendulum always swing from they were way too loose in the early 2000s, meaning the banks, they would give, here, can you fog a mirror? Great, here's a mortgage, to after the crisis— you you have a good credit score, you have a decent income, you have a good work history, and they still made people jump through all sorts of hoops to take uh, to get credit. Sure. I had a personal experience of that. I bought a condo on Roosevelt Island here in New York in mm -hmm. 2007, and it was really easy in 2007 to get the financing for me to buy my condo on Roosevelt Island. In 2009 or 10, when I refinanced, I had to jump through all kinds of hoops to just get it refinanced, even though I had a good history of paying my uh, mortgage payments uh, by that time. So you're right. I mean, 2006 and seven, it was very easy to get a mortgage loan. 2009, 10, it was much more difficult to refinance the same loan. I, I had the exact same experience. We did a refi, I want to say it was 05. And I'll never forget this guy pulling into the driveway, flinging open the door, running into the house. My wife and I are sitting at the dining room table. Sign, sign, initial, initial. Here's a check for $30,000. I apologize. I have a closing down the street and he disappeared. <laughs> If he was in the house for five minutes, and I want to say it was like a $300,000 mortgage, if it was he was there for five minutes, it was a long time. And I very vividly recall turning to my wife and saying, this can't be good. This was just a crazy it, – it was like a giant red flag. We buy a house in 2013, could not have been further opposite from that experience, where every month as we're waiting to the closing, the bank is saying – What's this deposit? You've asked me this every month for six months. That's my direct deposit from the from work. It shows up. Here's the bank it comes from. Here it is. We, we've discussed this every single month. It would ask. I assume you had similar craziness when you bought the condo after the Oh, yes. Uh, you had to send in tax records. You had to send in new paycheck stubs. You know, the one you sent three months earlier wasn't good enough earlier. for them. A month earlier. That's right. And I think they had a checklist of things they had to do after the crisis, and it just meant that it was much harder to get a loan. 
Uh, and, of course, the opposite side of that was that when the Federal Reserve was giving the banks a lot of liquidity, the banks weren't making those loans right. uh, or making it harder to get those loans. So the, the excess liquidity just stayed on the balance sheets of the banks as excess reserves, and we didn't have the inflation some people forecast. So what about the modern era of central bank transparency? Are, I remember when I started as a trader 100 years ago, you would find out what the central bank had done because – Interest rates would tick up or down, and people would say, oh, the central bank must be buying or selling paper. And and that was um, what affected it. You had to interpret what actually took place in the market via price action. Today, it seems every single step is telegraphed long in advance. Is that transparency a good thing or a bad thing? Um, I, I think it's probably a good thing because uh, the market's – sort of get an advance uh, warning of what the Fed is likely to do. And I think that, that then you have more time. You know, you're not shocked when the Federal Reserve raises its policy rate in when you didn't expect it. Uh, so now they telegraph that they're probably going to have some rate increases. And I think then the markets adjust more easily. So I think the transparency is probably a good thing. Do, does the Fed lose the ability or, or lose the capability to shock markets or surprise markets, which is also a tool in their uh, in their toolbox. Well, they, I think they can still shock markets. They have the power to do that. Like if they have a, a increase in rates or a reduction in rates when it wasn't expected. That mm-hmm. that's the whole thing. That what do, what are people expecting? Uh, you know, for example, expectations really matter. I think when uh, we're actually right around the 10th anniversary of Bear Stearns' failure, right. uh, the government, the Federal Reserve came in, made a deal to transfer a lot of the assets to J.P. Morgan Chase. And I think then people said, well, okay, the, the Fed is going to do that for Bear Stearns. We don't have to worry about other banks like Lehman because Lehman was bigger than Bear Stearns. So the markets expected that if Lehman got into trouble, the same thing would happen. The, the reason the crisis became so bad in 2008 after the Lehman failure is that the markets didn't expect it. So that was a big shock. So I, I think the, and the Fed can still you know, have a, an ability to change its rates or, or do something when the markets weren't expecting it. And then you would have this. But I think the Fed, uh, you know, you might have an adverse reaction. But I think the Fed sort of thinks we, we really don't want to do that unless it's, you know, absolutely necessary. Let's telegraph what we're thinking. I, I've always wondered what the thinking was like with the Fed taking a pass on Lehman Brothers and not rescuing them. And, and three things come up all the time, or, or at least when you look at the details. Uh, you have the moral hazard argument, well, if we rescue them, then— Bear Stearns is still a one-off. If we rescue Lehman, hey, aren't we telegraphing to everybody else that if you run into trouble, we'll rescue you also? Uh, the second issue is um, their books were just a mess between Repo 105 and everything else. And they were really it was really hard to figure out what Lehman was genuinely worse. Mm. But the thing I always fantasize about, uh, I wish I would have been a fly on the wall during that meeting, and a lot of people are unaware of this. Buffett, Warren Buffett of Berkshire Hathaway, offered $5 billion fairly early in the process to Dick Fold of Lehman Brothers. And Fold thought Buffett was trying to steal uh, Lehman and rejected him. Buffett got a much better deal paying for a chunk of Goldman Sachs at much more distressed uh, prices. But I always imagine that conversation amongst the Federal Reserve. Wait. He he turned down Warren Buffett, mm-hmm. and now he's hat in hand is coming to us. Yeah, no, we're we're gonna we're gonna pass on this. You guys are gonna have to uh, you're gonna have to hit the sidewalk on your own and just just leave us out of it. That that was how I always imagined that. I think that's a fair a statement. That I I think you know of course the authorities uh, Hank Paulson who was the set Treasury Secretary and Ben Bernanke who was the head of the Fed at that time claimed they didn't really have the authority to. Uh, uh, bail out Lehman. And yet uh, they saved AIG, which isn't even a bank. It's an yes, insurance that's company. Right. Uh, I think they did have the authority, but uh, for some reason they thought they didn't. Uh, but yeah, the moral hazard problem was there. And I think mm-hmm. Hank Paulson actually made the decision not to help Lehman because it would send the, the proper moral hazard lesson. I, it turned out that he was probably wrong, that he, you know that triggered this tremendous crisis and the, right. the, the Fed had to uh, mop up afterwards. Uh, and the Treasury did too. Um, 
But yeah, I think that you know you can. There's moral hazard. You know, if you're really worried about moral hazard, you might shut down the insurance industry. <laughs> the the question that I always debate pe- with people about is, um, was Lehman Brothers the trigger for the crisis, or were they merely the first um, mobile home in the park that the tornado? happened to to take. They were certainly much bigger than Bear Stearns. They were. And I I think you mentioned that their balance sheet was hard to figure out. I remember on the Friday before Lehman shut down on Monday, Lehman announced that there was no problem and that it, you know, it it had uh, 20 or 20 billion of, uh, you know, capital after it paid all of its liabilities. Uh, But that was only because they overvalued some of the securities they had. And that was the real problem. David Einhorn, a hedge fund guy in New York, had predicted all year long that Lehman was in bad shape. And it turned out he was right. Yeah, he, he had done a deep dive into the books and said they've wildly overstated their value. And Barclays, if memory serves, Barclay Capital went in, looked at the books, said, we we can't do this now because we can't figure out what your liabilities are. We're, we're happy to buy you out of bankruptcy after you file. So we have no liabilities. Right. And ultimately, that's what they ended up doing. Yeah, and you mentioned Dick Fold, too, who was a Stern School graduate, I believe. Uh, Dick Fold, he had a lot of his ego tied up in Lehman sure. Brothers. And uh, there was a deal that was on the, you know, rumored that some Korean investors were going to uh, take over Lehman before the failure. Mm-hmm. And apparently they asked for, you know, conditions that Dick Fold didn't want to accept because it would, wouldn't have left him running the company. Right. And so his, his own ego got involved there. And that's that's kind of what happens. In- the book. Books you've written on Alexander Hamilton, one of one of Hamilton's um, beliefs about uh, currency and having a central bank was that currency should be backed by gold or silver. That ended 40 years ago when Nixon took the U.S. off of the gold standard. Uh, what was Hamilton's justification for that belief system, and how do you think he would look at the current state of, of the economy? Well, I think Hamilton was a student of uh, economic and financial history. That you, when you read his writings, which I do quite a lot, you you see that he knew a lot of financial history when he was operating. And so, one of the things he knew was that England had a strong currency anchored in gold. That the Dutch Republic had a strong currency anchored in silver. And uh, so, the, you know. Hamilton called gold and silver the monies of the world. Mm -hmm. And I think he wanted the U.S., which didn't have its own currency unit, um, uh, to be like the other countries of the world. And and therefore, that would ease international trade and eliminate a lot of currency risk and things like that. So in his time, he was trying to bring the U.S. up to the standard of that time. What do you think he would look at current currencies that aren't necessarily backed by – by hard metals like that. Well, he would he would be skeptical of it in the sense that you know he, he wrote that uh, it's very easy to stamp numbers on paper and call it money. It's easy. To, it's, it's the stamping of paper. He said is very easy and it offers a temptation to governments. Uh, he didn't. Uh, you know, the banks of the United States were private corporations for the most part because Hamilton worried that if, if Congress controlled the central bank, it would just be printing money for Congress. So yeah, that, that would never yeah. happen. Would yeah, it? but I think <laughs> what Hamilton probably, even though his policies led to it, Hamilton couldn't possibly have foreseen the tremendous economic growth of the last two-plus centuries. And when he digested the growth of the last two centuries, he might say, you know, really gold and silver are fairly expensive ways to back money. Right. Uh, you know, you work very hard to dig the gold and silver out of the ground, refine it into bars, then bury the bars back in the ground. And Lord Keynes made fun of that. And I think Hamilton would be a little more modern and say, if you can control what the central bank is going to do, it's a lot cheaper not to base your money on gold and silver. Makes sense. Let's jump to our favorite podcast questions. These are, are the questions we ask all of our guests. Um, you're a fairly well-known person. Tell us something that most people don't know about your background. What most people don't know about my background? Well, I think I had a, one great financial triumph around 1981 mm-hmm. that uh, most people don't know about. And here's the situation. Uh, I'm in North Carolina at the time, and my wife takes me off to her church. Uh, so I'm attending this church, uh, and uh, the church decides around 1981 to sell the parsonage and just pay a, a, a rent supplement to the uh, minister. 
uh, that gave him a bunch of capital to invest. And since I'm an economist from MC State going to church with my wife, they asked me, what should you buy? You know, what, what, how should they invest that money? So in 1981, uh, this is a church, I advised them to put all the money into long-term U.S. government bonds, which were then yielding about 14 or 15 percent right. interest. And so they did that, and not only did they, for 15 or 20 years after that, get this 15% return on their money, but during the 1980s, interest rates came down and the bonds about doubled in value. So they were getting a tremendous return on this investment. They thought I was a genius, even though uh, <laughs> it was just a ma- I was lucky with the timing. But here's what people don't know. They were so happy about what I had done and thought I was a genius that they made me the chairman of the board of trustees of the church. And so most people don't know that one of my greatest triumphs in life was being the chairman of the board of trustees of a church of which I was not a member. (laughs) That's very, very funny. Tell us about some of your early mentors. You mentioned one uh, at Harvard. Who, Who were the people who affected your view of economics? Well, I got interested in economics in high school, and economics was not a subject in the late 1950s that was typically taught in high school. So I have to give a shout-out to my high school economics teacher. His name was Ralph Schmidt. Uh, I used to keep up with him, but I haven't been in touch with him uh, in recent years, and I'm not even sure he's still alive. I hope so. Uh, Ralph Schmidt was taught a really college-like course in economics while I was a senior in high school. And that just got me. We read things like Robert Heilbrunner's Worldly Philosophers, sure. and, and but a real good economics textbook as well. And I knew all about Paul Samuelson and Milton Friedman and people like that while I was in high school. So there was that high school teacher that kindled my interest in economics, and it's never left. You know, now 60, 70 years later, I'm still uh, interested in it. Then and I mentioned... Uh, uh, well, I should talk about college because Gershon Kron, sure. uh, my Ph.D. advisor, uh, came later. But in uh, while I was in college, the Harvard had a couple professors named Otto Eckstein and Seymour Harris. Otto Eckstein uh, later on founded Data Resources, you know, which became a, a big uh, uh, data firm. Uh, and, and he uh, was a young, very bright economist and uh, knew all the things going on in Washington. He was a public finance economist, so I liked him. And Seymour Harris was an old Harvard professor, been there many years, and he was my senior thesis advisor, and he took a liking to me, and I took a liking to him. He was a very prolific writer, not, not wasn't so much original, but he wrote a lot of stuff about policy. And so those two professors you know, were not only mentors, but sort of friends. Uh, and then Gershon Kron was my mentor as a grad student, but he, he was also a friend. You know, he lived near where I lived in the summer. I'd, when he was wife was gone, we'd invite him over for dinner and all that. So he was a friend of the family. Uh, and they, you know, th- those four, Ralph Schmidt in high school, Otto Eckstein and Seymour Harris in college, and then Gershon Kron in grad school, I think those were the, my mentors that mattered to me in my life. So holding the mentors aside what what investors affected the way you look at the world of markets and investing well in the 1950s when i was still in high school i read something like it might have been the third edition of benjamin graham's sure. the intelligent investor and i learned a lot from that because there was a lot of wisdom in benjamin graham's work uh, my friend jason zweig is you know half a century later has brought out a new edition of it mm-hmm. uh, I, so that's a book that influenced me when i was young about value investing and uh, you know, just a lot of wisdom that Ben Graham had. So that influenced me a lot. Uh, and uh, then, you know, some some books sort of combined economic history, financial history with investment advice. Um, and one of those that I remember, a book from the late 1950s, was Bray Hammond. He was the secretary of the Federal Reserve Board. Bray Hammond wrote a book called Banks and Politics in America, from the Revolution to the Civil War. And it's just a wonderful book. It's well worth reading half a century later uh, because it captures the spirit of America. You know, the country was built by steam and credit, you know, and, and fraudsters were there and all that. You know, he, he'd go into financial frauds, how they took place. And at the end of it, he would say, thus did America grow great. You know, it was kind of sarcastic. <laughs> but, you know, you by studying history, you could sort of spot things in finance that to avoid and to 
latch on to. A- any other books you want to mention? This is always everybody's favorite question. People, uh, well, people ask when I was in grad school, my first year of grad school was 1963, and one of the great books that of uh, economic history that came out then was Milton Friedman and Anna Schwartz, A Monetary mm-hmm. History of the United States. At that time, especially at Harvard, not at Chicago, obviously, uh, most people were Keynesians. Right. And Milton Friedman made this powerful historical uh, uh I wouldn't say it's an attack on Keynesianism, but there was something that the Keynesians hadn't paid much attention to, namely monetarism. And Milton Friedman's book sort of showed that there was a lot to monetarism. Mm -hmm. And so then people began to rethink Keynesianism. And later on, economists, of course, came up with uh, rational expectations and other things. Uh, But I think Friedman and Schwartz, The Monetary History of the United States, was one of those books. I happened to be lucky enough to read it when I was 23 years old, Mm -hmm. and it influenced my career a great deal because it's really such a wonderful book. Any other books you want to mention before we move on? Well, I should mention that uh, I happen to own the 27 volumes of the Papers of Alexander Hamilton and the five volumes of the Law Practice of Alexander Hamilton. And uh, I go in to read those a lot because that's just fascinating. They take up about 10 feet on my bookshelves. 27 volumes. Yeah, and this is interesting for a man who only lived 47 years. Wow, that's impressive. Um, So... We, we've been talking about central banks. We've been talking about interest rates. What do you see as the next shift that's going to take place in either how the central bank conducts itself or interest rate policies? Well, I, my historical perspective makes me think that the Federal Reserve now is kind of in the situation of the Federal Reserve around the early 1950s. It had kept interest rates very low for a long time. It realized that those rates were probably too low. They weren't normal. So they want to normalize. And I think that the, uh, the goal of the Federal Reserve over the next few years will be to gradually increase our interest rates back to more of a normal level. Uh, now, there could be some problems with this that I foresee. Number one, the fiscal policy, you know, fiscal policy was basically non-existent during and after the crisis. Obama had a little bit of stimulus, not enough in 2009. Right. But since then, the gridlock in Washington prevented any sort of fiscal policy designed to help the economy. Until, now that, until the most recent tax reform. Right. That's, now that's that's a President Trump is changing that. So we got a, we got a tax cut in uh, uh, late 2017, and then there's a deal between the Republicans and the Democrats where each one gets a little more spending. That came up just in January 2018. And then Trump is talking about an infrastructure program. So what I see right now, and it bothers me a little bit, is that the sort of fiscal stimulus we should have had in 2008, 9, 10 is taking place when the unemployment was, you know, in 2009, it was 10%. Now it's 4.1%, basically full employment or close to it, and we're getting the fiscal stimulus we should have had when unemployment was 10% when we're sort of fully employed. So what the Federal Reserve may have trouble containing uh, inflationary pressures, and it may have to raise interest rates faster than uh, it did in the 1950s when they could just move up gradually over a decade. And I think that bodes ill for, you know, probably overvalued stock markets and things like that. So I'm a little bit wary about the outlook for the next year or two. Tell us about a time you failed and what you learned from the experience. A time I failed and what I learned from the experience. Well, I I think uh, in the history of interest rates, uh, I did make a bad forecast in, in, in the last edition of it, which was the 2005 edition. In 2004, I thought we'd hit the low in interest rates <laughs> yeah. in May of 2003. Uh, mentioned that earlier. That's and, pre-crisis thinking. Yes, right. Uh, and, you know, th- those those rates in 2002 and three and early 2004 were really the lowest ones on record up to that time. And so we turned up, and you know, after a year and a half of rates moving up, I said, "Okay, probably we've hit the low in 2003." Uh, and you'll you'll read that in the last edition of the book. And so um, I think that was an obvious mistake. And what I learned from that is that forecasting is a, is a tough business. You know, uh, I became an economic historian because it's a lot easier to forecast the past. We, sure. we know what happened. <laughs> we don't know exactly how it happened. But when you're there, people want to know right now what's going to happen in the next month or year. Uh, that's very tough to forecast. And so I couldn't see in 2004 and five that we would have this great financial crisis starting in 2007. 
So if a millennial or a college student came up to you and said they were thinking about going into either economics or financial uh, history, what sort of advice might you give them? Well, I would say that it's a very rewarding uh, thing to study. Uh, I, I somehow think that economic and financial history, if you can make contributions there, they kind of last longer. In, in straight economics, you're often trying to tweak the last paper you saw in the journal, put another tweak on it, and then get a journal article which shows that you're on the cutting edge. Uh, but then somebody else tweaks you, and pretty soon your article isn't that important. If you write a really good book in economic history, like Milton Friedman and Anna Schwartz did in their monetary history, or Bray Hammond did in his Banks and Politics book, th those books last a long time, and you can read them half a century later. So I would say that going into economic and financial history it may give you more long-term rewards than just being an ordinary garden-variety economist. Uh, uh, so that's what I would advise uh, scholars. But of course, you know, there's you know, there's other advice I'd give that you know, read Ben Graham's book if you're a millennial, uh, the new edition of it, and then mostly you know, save save money and invest it. Uh, the power of compound interest is is so great, but we don't realize it because it happens slowly. So for any millennial, not just one who might want to be a professor, I would say you may not have a lot of money, but make sure to you know save 10% of it like John D. Rockefeller did. <laughs> and our final question, what is it that you know about investing today that you wish you knew 50 years ago when you were starting out of, uh, out of grad school? Well, I wish I had known f 50 years ago uh, – what what these long-term market cycles were were like, both in interest rates and stock returns. Now, we didn't have a lot of the data, and I myself have worked on creating some of these data, but I think that if I had known uh, 50 years ago how stock markets bounce up and down, they, they really magnify the ups and downs of the economy by quite a bit, if we can call it P-E ratios, uh, increasing and decreasing. Uh, if I had known that 50 years ago that there were these long cycles that have been going on for 200 years, I probably would have paid more attention to where we were in the market cycles then. And the same thing with interest rates. If I knew that there were like 20, 30-year movements of interest rates, I would try to see where we were in that cycle and then not make the mistake of uh, you know, investing all, a lot of money in interest rates when the, they're very low because when they go up, you, you lose capital, basically. Uh, we have been speaking with Professor Richard Silla of NYU Stern School of Business, author of numerous books, most recently, Alexander Hamilton on finance, credit, and debt. Thank you so much for doing this. This has been absolutely fascinating. If you enjoy this conversation, be sure and look up an inch or down an inch on Apple iTunes, and you can see any of the other, let's call it 190 such conversations we've had previously. Uh, we love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at mibpodcast at bloomberg.net. I would be remiss if I did not thank my crack staff. That helps to put together this uh, podcast each week. Medina Parwana is our audio engineer slash producer. Taylor Riggs is our booker producer. And Michael Batnick is our head of research. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com enterprise data to learn more.